0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. We finished up the final news show recording of 2022, and we really do have a great show for you. We're bringing you the big stories, including FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, charged with defrauding investors. It's pretty bad. New bank announces $330 million equity capitalization in Mexico, really one of Fintech's global success stories. And who's on FinTech's naughty or nice list? You don't want to miss this one. Lots of really good shouts. We get into all this and much more, but first, a few brief messages, so don't go anywhere. Embedded banking and banking as a service business models open up a world of opportunities for banks, but they also present plenty of challenges along the way. In our latest report, in partnership with Infosys Finical, we unpack the growth and revenue opportunities for banks. Take a look at the brands that are already making headway by embedding banking into the context of customer journeys. And address the challenges that banks and brands need to overcome to deliver embedded banking successfully. Find out more and download your copy at content.11fs.com. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Watch Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open Mic Night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11FS.com or visit 11FS.com to find out more.
1: Long live the community.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 690 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher and I'm joined this week on our last Fintech Insider News of the Year by some great guests to break down the week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Janae Ayo, Director of Financial Policy from the Chamber of Progress. Hi, Janae. Great to have you. Um, tell me, since we're, we're feeling festive... What are, you, uh, what are you hoping for in your Christmas stocking from Santa this year?
1: Well, good morning. Um, I would say the biggest thing I'm hoping for is a new SEC chair after the collapse of FTX.
0: Yeah, that's, it's bold and ambitious, but I like it. Um, all right, well, look, Janae, really great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Um, it's also a very exciting and very welcome return to FinTech Insider for Sarah Kishansky, independent fintech consultant. So Sarah, look, welcome back. Amazing to have you. Um, I like this question. What does someone buy an independent fintech consultant for Christmas?
2: Can I just be paid on time, please? Like within the 30 days it says in my invoice, that would be really, really nice. That That's all I want.
0: Also bold and ambitious. I love we're it. Keeping, we're keeping the theme. Um, yes, yeah, Sarah, look, lovely to have you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining. And then we also have a very welcome return to FinTech Insider for Bruno Denise, co-founder at Spiral M. So Bruno, look, welcome back. Great to have you. Um, your question, what does a Brazilian Christmas look like?
3: Yeah, first of all, glad to be back and basically hot. <laughs> that's a good yeah, one. Yeah, bet. Yeah, <laughs> like 30 degrees Celsius plus. Uh, so that's basically Christmas in Brazil. Uh, pretty different from everything that I see you guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like all dressed up and uh, cold weather, but that's that's basically and it's a slow paced month as well. I think uh, December from the mid-December onwards, I think it's a very, very slow month.
0: Yeah, I think given that Sarah and I are both sat here freezing. I think the, the idea of a, a hot Christmas sounds, sounds pretty dreamy right now. All right. Well, look, great to have you guys with us. I think we're going to have a good show. And uh, so I guess with that, let's dive in. So our first story comes from The Guardian with the headline, FTX founder Sam Bankman fried charged with defrauding investors. So Sam Bankman fried SBF, the founder and former chief executive of the crypto exchange FTX has been charged by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission with defrauding investors in the company. The SEC said Bankman-Fried concealed his diversion of FTX customers' funds to Alameda Research, FTX's crypto hedge fund, while raising more than $1.8 billion, or £1.5 billion for UK listeners, from investors, including about $1.1 billion from about 90 U.S.-based investors, With the significant amount raised from US-based investors, the agency is asserting its right to oversee the case despite the FTX itself being nominally based in the Bahamas. FTX filed for US bankruptcy protection last month and Bankman-Fried resigned as chief executive, triggering a wave of public demands for greater regulation of the cryptocurrency industry. In recent weeks, U.S. authorities have sought information from investors and potential investors in FTX. Now, for the fully crypto-native take on this story, you really should tune into our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider. Today, we'll attempt maybe to look at this story as it relates to the wider industry. Janae, I'm going to bring you in here first purely because you referenced this exact story uh, in your intro, but keen to get your your thoughts, your reaction uh, to this story this week.
1: Um, well you know it's it's very significant uh, what's happened it's already been a strained relationship between cryptocurrency and lawmakers um you know at a time when the industry really needs thoughtful regulation and clear rules of the road lawmakers are now in a position where they uh, need to be more reactive in their proposals as we head into 2023 um, so at a time when you know crypto needed to regain consumer trust SBF, uh, cemented a sketchy reputation with the actions of of the collapse of his companies.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Sarah, that point on trust, I think, is a, a big one, right? And there's no escaping the fact that this has had a a damaging impact on, on crypto more generally, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it has, to a certain extent, though, I I always question how much of an impact it's going to have on the people who who are fully sold on it, right? Like they will go, that's one bad actor. They will go, I'll find somewhere else to do it. I'll continue to invest in crypto. If that's what people want to do, and if they fully believe in it, then I don't think this will have that much of an impact on the general retail investment landscape. Um, the thing that really frustrates me, um, and this is me getting back on a soapbox that you've you've heard me uh, pronounce from before, Ross, is that when are we going to stop trusting privileged, and excuse me, men who run these companies <laughs> um, just because they happen to come from that background of privilege? I mean, an awful, yes, there was a legal action here, absolutely. But part of that illegal action came from the fact they were just making it up as they went along. And because they sounded confident, because they were well-educated, a lot of it was just allowed to happen. Yes, regulation needs to happen. I completely agree with that perspective. But I think part of the reason they got as far as they did was because of who they were. And then to your point of trust, we need to stop trusting people based specifically on how they appear or what you know what their, their demographic is, um, particularly in the, in the wider tech space. That's not just fintech. Steps back off soapbox.
0: Oh, I've missed that. No, that was terrific. And, <laughs> and listen, I mean, I completely agree. And one thing that I guess has sort of come up on this story and and, and something that maybe might help contextualize it, Bruno, how much do you think that this is a sort of an issue specifically with crypto or just really actually this is a story about fraud and whether it's crypto, TradFi, actually, as long as there's value to sort of be extracted by taking advantage of people, bad actors will do that, to Sarah's point.
3: Yeah, first, first of all, I think that's not uh, something related strictly to crypto. It's it's, it's wider. It, we're talking about fraud. We're talking about, you know, the type of crimes that happens every, all, all the time in the financial sector. But the thing is, it brings up to attention for us that the need for, uh, you know, a proper regulation and smart regulation. If you take an example, for for, for example, the case of um, Japan, uh, they've been through that uh, two times uh, with Mt. Mont- Gox and there's the other company the other crypto exchange which is uh, Coincheck so basically what they did there is they segregate the the money for from the customers uh from the the actual exchange and they need to put that money into a third party they got to deposit the the, the crypto they need to be uh, custodian in another uh in another place so things like that i think a fairly basic things around regulation could could help a lot uh, it changed, but I really think that's uh, all the, the the way that the case of SBF and FTX is, is being conducted right now. I agree with Sarah; is is a total mess, uh, and I think that so many lessons can come from this this type of of, of of thing that happened in the market. So, but it's not crypto's fault, definitely.
1: I also wanted to add uh, briefly, you know, just piggybacking off of what Sarah had mentioned with privilege. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried was a well-connected individual. His parents, you know, had ties to uh, Hillary Clinton, and you know, his parents also had ties to um, Gary Gensler, and so he was able to leverage those contacts, um, you know, to to really advance his agenda and al- advocate for himself. And because of those relationships, that you know, these government officials had with his parents, he was really able to leverage that. Uh, So I I don't want I I like to refer to this as an outlier because your average crypto innovator does not have, you know, well-connected parents. You know, they are people who are out here trying to innovate and and do well in this space. So I I don't think that SBF and his actions um, are indicative of the entire industry as a whole.
2: I think it's going to be interesting to see if he comes back from this. My brain's gone to Adam Newman. Now, arguably, um, he didn't necessarily conduct fraud of this scale. um, But the way he's come back, the way that money's just pouring into his latest venture, it frustrates me. There are so many amazing founders out there with amazing ideas who never even get to... to to speak those out loud, let alone put them in front of the kind of investors that um, you know, bankman Freud and Freed and um, Adam Newman can can just step into. Uh, um, to, to Janae's point, into his parents' living room and just say, "I've got this idea." Um, I mean, yeah, I think I would I would like to see proper action taken against him as if he were any other person committing this level of fraud, including, and this would apply to anybody in the, you know, the TradFi industry, restrictions on what he can do in future within this industry. Like, can you come back and operate in this? Not if you've got restrictions against you in any other part of finance.
3: Well, just one thing to, to add to that, uh, I think it's a very interesting topic. Uh, it also makes me think about Tyrannos, uh, the case of Elizabeth Holmes as well, because when you see what happened to Adam Newman and what happened to, to Elizabeth Holmes in this whole thing, it's it's not proportional. It's, it's crazy. And uh, the same thing applies to, to SBF in this case.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one because, look, I think hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I think some of the, some of the things that have come out about this story, when you read about them now, they seem like such obvious red flags. Like it almost feels unusual that this wasn't called out before, right? Um, but I guess in the context of what we're talking about, we've we've mentioned a lot of people, right? Adam Newman, um, Elizabeth Holmes, obviously SBF. We seem to make the same mistakes over and over again with these sort of like celebrity CEOs not actually maybe doing enough to really interrogate like the business model, the the the, the product, whatever it is. I mean, Sarah, maybe back to you. Do you think that we're going to start to see any movement away from that sort of celebrity CEO like and those sort of like celebrity founder businesses in favor of just better fundamentals? Like, are we going to learn anything this time?
2: Um, So I would like to say that I think we are going to see a change. However, from my perspective, um, I think there's a cultural and a societal issue at play here, which um, affects which people we question and which people we don't um, when they're doing certain things and when they're acting in a certain way. And when certain people act with confidence, they get away with it. When other people act with confidence, more questions are asked. So um, I think, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen quickly.
1: Allow me to, to jump in here. Um, you know, I don't think that there will be the end of the celebrity CEO. We've seen CEOs who just started out in business and, you know, technology, and now they've become celebrities off of, you know, the company that they founded and that they've branded, you know, just thinking about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. So I don't think we'll, we'll see the end of, of the celebrity CEO, especially with you know, more people interested in personal branding and that sort of thing. But I, I really think that, you know, related to uh, FTX, you know, the this was a... a Partially fueled by low interest rates and and a huge amount of, of venture capital money, just looking for anyone to to come in and generate returns for their um, for their organization. So I think that you know SBF being this wunderkind and you know the the crypto messiah at some points. Um, you know it was just you know partially propped up because people were very greedy, specifically venture capitalists. Um, I think down the line, you know, with higher interest rates um, coming around the bend, I mean, I think it'll just uh, lead to more careful investors and investors who are really seriously looking under the hood to make sure that all of their investments are are sound financially.
0: Yeah, which can only be a good thing, right, Bruno?
3: Yeah, the thing is, uh, I also when you think about uh, the venture capital industry and all of that, and, you know, most of the venture capitalists they invest in people in the founders, so there's a lot of, of uh, you, you know, uh, I would say pressure on on, on that specifically. But but I, I wish, I really wish that the celebrity CEO is over, especially after a point in which you know the company already grow and now the company is, is public listed and then, or even prior to that, because. Uh, as an investor, I really don't like that. It's just like the case of politicians. If a, if a politician is like displaying a lot, if you're talking a lot about them, if if you uh, know him more about how he's displayed in the media rather than you know, if you're not listening, they are doing a, a job, and perhaps it's better this way. If not listening because they are working properly, and you just you conduct your life, you know, it's a different era, like uh, Boris Johnsons and the Donald Trumps of 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 life, you know, you you hear more of, of of their personal life or everything that they think rather than the the actual work they are performing. So I think it's pretty much uh, it's the same when we're talking about companies. But it's far from over, just like Janae said, because now we are in the personal branding era as well. So but um, let's see. Let's see how it's going to unfold.
0: Yeah, well, look, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think if we do start to move away from uh, not necessarily move away, I mean, I take your points. But if the, the that celebrity CEO becomes less of the focus, and Janae, to your point, we start to look a little bit closer at actually are those strong fundamentals in place. I mean, that's only good for everybody, right?
3: So I, I have one more consideration on that. I, I think we, we, we need to, Uh, keep a distance of what is a celebrity CEO and what is a CEO that inspires. For example, in case of Brazil, we have Dave DeVallis from New Bank. We don't hear that much about Dave DeVallis. He's just doing his job and he not brings and draws too much attention on what he's doing. It's different from what you see in the case of SBF, all the time in the media, all the time lobbying, all the time talking. Uh, and I think that deviates a little, you know, the attention from what's actually important, which is the work of the company, how the company is performing. In the case of Nubank performing well, the CEO is not the flashy guy, he's a very low-profile guy. So, but it's a guy that inspires the industry. So that's a different thing that I think it's important considering here.
0: I listen, I completely agree. And I think Nubank as just like a global fintech success story. I think they're as good as anyone. They also are our next story. So it's a very neat segue. Um, So I'm going to move us on. Um, This story comes from Reuters. So Brazil's new bank announces $330 million equity capitalization in Mexico. Brazilian digital bank, New Bank, Latin America's largest fintech, announced a $330 million equity capitalization in Mexico as it pushes to expand operations in the country. The investment adds to the $1 billion the company has previously invested in foreign investors and one of the best capitalized financial institutions in Mexico. So New Bank also said that Mexican banking regulator CNBV approved the expansion of its product portfolio, allowing the company to kick off the rollout of its digital savings account and debit card announced in November. So Bruno, I think it makes sense uh, to come to you. First on this, interested sort of in your sort of thoughts more generally, and then also I suppose why Mexico is such an attractive prospect for Nubank.
3: Okay, perfect. Yeah, uh, I think that's uh, the the next obvious uh, battlefield for for, for Nubank is already big in Brazil. Out of seventy million clients, more than sixty five million are in Brazil. So they established their footprint in Brazil. They became the fifth largest bank in the country, which is a very big deal. And now they are aiming uh, to, to to play big in in Mexico as well. When you look at the competitive landscape in, in Mexico, there are lots of space for New Bank to grow. They are thirty three point two uh, million uh, customers uh, based there, uh, so they 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 have lots of space to grow. Uh, there are lots of unbanked people in Mexico as well, and right now. As it uh, the new bank became a publicly listed company, big one in Brazil, is a is a time for them to uh, do everything they can to challenge the Mexican financial space, where we still have the big banks as uh, big players there. So there are many things to be challenged in the Mexican financial space by New Bank. I think they're in a good position to do so.
0: And Bruno, to your point, um, it sounds like lots of scope to bring sort of people, excluded people into sort of formal financial services, which was a big part of the success in the model in Brazil, right?
3: Exactly, exactly. And I think that the new bank got the mechanics, even though in the case of financial exclusion in, uh, in Mexico is uh, deeper than, than Brazil. I think Brazil got uh, a, a, a better scenario in a, in a general sense. But there are some similarities, especially the cultural ones uh, from Brazil and Mexico that's that that can all obviously used uh, as a playbook for you know as new banks are very well established here is doing is start doing a very good job in Colombia as well but Mexico I think that that's the time to go all in uh, in the country and really make a positive difference there
0: yeah it's incredible because you, you rightly mentioned they're now sort of very well established in in, in three markets and growing. Um, Sarah I started out calling them a sort of global, fintech success story i think Bruno sort of covered off the customer numbers which are staggering the market and they're profitable right i mean this is a this is a rare thing
2: yeah, I just, um, when I saw this story come up, I went away to, um, to see if I could go, ha, told you so. Um, I wrote a blog post in February 2021 about Newbank, which was called um, the most interesting digital-only banks don't get enough attention about how I predicted that Nubank was going to be like the shining star. So i just like to say, I told you so. It doesn't happen very often, but it's on the 11FS uh, web page, if anyone wants to go and d- double check it. Um, to your point, Newbank has done incredibly well um and to bruno's point earlier i think a lot of that is down to the founding team they've got a very strong founding team who are actually very purpose-driven as well they kind of have a, a mission as well as wanting to you know, a lot of a lot of bank founders bank founders will say oh there's a gap in the market and we want to fill it the gap in the uk market for a neobank was nothing like the gap in the market in latin america most people who wanted a neobank or have got a neobank in europe and to a large extent, the US, although it's slightly different there, have another bank, have another option, can go somewhere else. What New Bank did was go into a market that was incredibly dominated by some very powerful institutions. And politically powerful, um, Bruno obviously knows a lot more about this than me, but from an outsider reading it, politically powerful and say, we are going to challenge you. And they did that well through this this purpose-driven, this mission-driven organization that genuinely put financial products into people's hands who needed them and didn't go around charging them extorbitant fees just because they could. That obviously worked incredibly well for them in terms of word of mouth. A lot of their customer acquisition has been organic. OK, Monzo's customer acquisition was organic, but the way in which those products are used and what they mean to those people's financial lives is very, very different. Um, so I think, yes, NewBank is an incredible success story, but I don't think it's right to match it to Chime or Monzo or Starling. Because they're the thing operating in very different markets with very different customer segments. Um, that doesn't mean, as I said, NewBank haven't done well and, and the way in which they're doing it is continuing to, to prove that they understand that their customers, they understand there will be nuances between the markets and what those look like, um, and it's working out well for them. But, yeah, I think you just have to take it with the nuance of understanding that specific market. And I know that people like WISE are trying to go into Latin America. I don't think they'll have anywhere near the same set level of success, not least of all because NewBank's cleaned up, but <laughs> but just in terms of understanding the customer, understanding the problem, and understanding the culture.
0: Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting distinction to sort of delineate between the success that Newbank has had and then the likes of Chime and Monzo and others. Um, Janae, do you think there are things that, you know, those other types of neobanks can maybe learn from Newbank's approach, how they've approached sort of solving some of those problems? What do you think has really uh, has really set them apart?
1: Well, I think, you know, one of the things that the that American neobanks can look at is, is how they approach their um, their population that they serve. Um, one of the biggest things that I've seen in the neobank market here is how um, neobanks form around communities that are, for whatever reason, underbanked or unbanked. They're not able to access traditional financial services, uh, being in a rural location or maybe being justice involved. Um, so I, I think that one of the things that our neobanks could do is, is really focus on what is, what's doing well abroad and how can we bring that to the United States, with respect to the, the culture difference, um, one of the things that I, I think about is, you know, will we ever have a global neo bank? Will we ever have, you know, a, a bank that? is able to expand around the entire world and have, you know, people from different populations, you know, actively using their accounts. And I think, you know, just getting through that um, uh, cultural uh, differences and, and understanding cultural competencies and understanding, you know, what makes things work in each market will really be beneficial to to ensure that something like that happens in the future.
0: It's just such a critical point. Um, and it's that approach to solving for those problems in those communities that your customers are going to face starting with the customers staying with the customers Bruno from your experience how important has the the sort of the education aspect been in terms of like bridging that gap extending those financial services out to those excluded communities and I guess sort of like just just delivering a little bit more in terms of like Financial literacy and helping those people because they didn't all have access to to formal financial services before New Bank came along, right?
3: Sure, sure. And and I think that uh, financial education is a long neglected uh, topic in the region. I think it, even globally, but in in Latin America, I think it was a pain. And uh, some players that uh, start operating with with financial education in mind changed the game. Here in Brazil, we got. Uh, brokerage house called XP Investments that they grew by uh, educating people about the stock market. So we saw more and more people coming into into the the stock market. In the case of New Bank, they have since the beginning, uh, you know, a personal financial management tool inside of the app, helping people really, you know, manage their finance. So that that's crucial, and I think that they also. Investing that if with new features, for example, they have, uh, some, you can make some specific investments like purpose driven, uh, investments in, inside the app. There are lots of, of new interesting things that they can do and they are bringing since the inception of the company, uh, trying to be straightforward and clear in terms of uh, the messaging, because that's another problem that we saw with the big banks. And they set a new type of standard for the market. So not only in terms of UX, but also financial education. And there are lots of other things that can be done. Uh, and I believe that the Dubai is a very good uh, shape to do that and continuing you know, changing the market, not only in Brazil, but that applying also to Mexico, Colombia, and other, other, all, some other countries that they are into right now.
2: Can I can I just build on that in the sense of bringing the, the comparison in again? I think there's also a cultural difference about whether customers are willing, how customers are willing to interact with a financial institution trying to educate them. So I think a lot of companies in the West, banks, near banks, have tried blog posts and videos and educational tools, and they get very low levels of interaction. And I believe that's partly. There's a few reasons, but I think the two major reasons are one, that people think they know, they don't, they, well, there's three, people already think they know, they don't trust a financial institution to be acting in their interests, whereas newbank has established this position of trust in, in, in Brazil. Um, and then the third thing is um, having the capacity to absorb that information. Like, you have to genuinely want to go and absorb it and learn it it's very hard to be educated if you're not receptive to it um, and i get the feeling that different cultures are more open to to engaging willingly and spending time to, to be educated um, to be educated that sounds incredibly patronizing that wasn't what i meant but to absorb the information that people are trying to impart because they know it will help them and they want to, to improve themselves Um, So I think, you know, when we look at a lot of the programs that have been launched by financial services companies and fintechs across Europe, they just get so little engagement that there's definitely a difference in the way it's been delivered and the people.
0: Yeah. And we see that, don't we, in the numbers, right? NewBlock, um, where NewBank posts its personal financial advice received, I think, seven and a half million visits last month alone. Right. So it just it just serves to sort of uh, illustrate your point, Sarah. Um, Bruno, last word to you on this.
3: Yeah, I think that the two basic elements here, even prior to blog posting and all that, it comes down to uh, transparency in the way you communicate with your clients and you UX as well. So I think that many of the hidden letters that the, the the other players used to apply in the market, so not a very clear communication, that, that left a gap, you know, in terms of the communication with the client. So the way the bank changed that by being, transparent in the way they communicate and, and making a usability so that people can actually understand what's going on is better than trying to tell someone how to do something. And out of this, they created their content and all of that so that the ones that want to go into the journey of learning more about that could do so. So that's, that's another important uh, point, I think.
0: Yeah, agree. I think that's important. It's about, it's not just doing the right things, it's doing the right things in the right order, building that credibility, building that relationship and then sort of building on it from there. Um, And I think also maybe we're all just suckers for uh, purple cards um, or hot coral or whatever flavor you're having today. Um, All right, cool. I am gonna just take us to a quick break. We'll be back with you very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explores series. Weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around. Such as...
2: On Rampy. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now.
0: Okay, welcome back. Let's get into our next story, which comes from CNBC with a headline, Inflation Peaked, But It's Not Returning to Pre-COVID Levels in 2023. That's according to Mastercard. Um, So inflation has already peaked, but it will remain above pre-COVID levels in 2023. This is according to David Mann, the Chief Economist for Asia-Pacific, Middle East and Africa at the Mastercard Economics Institute. So inflation has seen its peak this year. But it will still be above what we had been used to pre-pandemic next year, is what Mann told CNBC's Squawk Box Asia. Central banks around the world have been hiking interest rates um, as recently as November in response to high inflation. They include central banks from the group of 10 countries, such as the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, and the Reserve Bank of Australia, as well as those of emerging markets such as Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, and the Philippines. So, I mean... Pretty, pretty clear statement um here from MasterCard. Maybe we will come to you first on this one. What, what was your reaction to this story? What were your thoughts when you read it?
1: Well, I think that you know everybody is reacting to higher interest rates right now, not just the the fintech industry. Uh, I think the the number one driver of the the reaction to inflation, our consumers and looking at their activity, um, just thinking about, you know, their retail spending this past month was not on par with what was projected uh, for uh, the month of November. So looking at how they're reacting is indicative of how big banks and, and fintech companies alike will will be looking at in the future. Um, pretty much the whole fintech industry was created during a period of low interest rates. So uh, your savings at one institution versus another wasn't necessarily about interest, uh, it was more about your differences in consumer experience, but you know, as the interest rates rise, uh, industry possibly could be unsure of what the impact on customer deposits will be if neobanks begin to lose deposits to higher savings, higher interest savings accounts. They're going to start having to think strategically about how financially they can offer better interest rates and maintain balance sheets. And also looking at how digital lenders will see their cost of funding rise, which means that they'll have to hike prices, uh, which traditional banks usually don't have as much pressure to do.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting point about fintechs having to think about really, you know, what's the hook? How do they sort of pull people in from an interest rate perspective? Sarah, in the UK, we're seeing like, Um, Crew, they've recently launched a a sort of what they're calling a no strings, I'm doing air quotes, um, 2% interest rate, current account, you know, which is great as a hook. But how much do you think that's going to resonate with customers versus sort of like features and things that they're probably going to need going forward to give them better control over those their personal financial finances and spending, etc.
2: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, there's always been a segment of the market which is very interest rate sort of savvy. Uh, we have this um, chap in the UK called Martin Lewis, who is known for um, doing these, he's he's like a a money guru. And he appears on morning television and has a website and everything. And he always publishes, you know, the top interest rate accounts and which ones you should use. And anybody who is sort of always been aware of their finances already knows where the best interest rates are to be found. Um, I think the problem is, it doesn't matter how high the interest rate is, if you've got nothing to save. I think the bigger problem here is that People haven't got any money to spend, let alone save. They can't afford, you know, we're joking, we're sitting here and I'm genuinely wearing five jumpers, but my heating is on in my house. I can't afford to put the heating on. Um, there are plenty of people out there who don't have the money to put the heating on. And where I am right now, it's minus 12 Celsius, so that is cold. Um, what's the point in offering an interest rate? As I said, if somebody's got nothing to save, we need to find better ways to help people manage the cost of living crisis. Now, I don't think that should be entirely on financial services. I don't think they can solve it. It's a much, much bigger problem. You know, in the UK, we have inflation, um, you know, as we do in the the, the rest of the world does. We also have, you know, ongoing Brexit problems. We have political instability here. So those things are all going to continue to impact the cost of living. We've got people striking. The nurses in the UK are striking today. They have never been on strike before in the history. So it is... Huge. Um and so what that now I've got on my soap another soapbox. Get back off the soapbox, Sarah, answer the question. Um I think <laughs> I think interest rates are not the answer. I think products and services that help people manage their money better are the answer. Some examples of that would be helping people manage debt they've already got. How can you repackage your loans and make sure that you're using it, you're paying off the most appropriate part of that loan you've already got. How can you, if you need access to extra funding, access the most appropriate funding for you, uh, you know, no brainer, a 30% credit card, a 30% interest rate on a credit card, probably not the answer to most people in debt. So how do we help people access appropriate credit for their situation? Um, and how do we help people find the the lowest prices, things for the things they need? So whether that's insurance or utilities, or even their groceries, how do we help people make the most of what money they've got? Those are the tools that I think can have some impact they will not solve the problem. And I think it's optimistic to be looking at 2023 and going, oh, inflation's peaked, it'll come back down again. It's the way people are living and the way people are struggling is going to carry on for a long, long time.
0: Yeah, and look, you know, I mean, um, I saw some really startling statistics on like the growth of food banks um, in the UK and stuff over the, the, the last sort of decade or so. Really, it's terrifying. And I think, you know, Credit balances, short-term credit, credit card balances are, are through the roof. Um, you know, um, defaults are already, are already sort of rising at, at record levels. It feels like there's really very little resilience at an individual level, certainly in the UK economy, but I think, you know, the US and other economies as well. Um, Bruno, what's the, what's the sort of LATAM lens on this? What's the picture there?
3: Well, uh, looking uh, a more broad way, I think that uh, that's part of the Latin American package here, because we've been through scenarios of high inflation, you know, for different times in, in history. Uh, that's kind of the standard. And I, and I think when you look at, uh, of course, things are going to be harder, especially when you look how things used to be prior to the hiking in interest rates and inflation. Um, we've been, for example, in Brazil, we had like a, a 2% interest rate in August to, to 2020, and now it's like uh, almost 14%. So, uh, uh, so we are used to, especially the entrepreneurs locally are used to these changes. Uh, of course, we're coming from a very, you know, a very different scenario. Uh, especially for lenders here it will be tough. Uh, but, th- but that's it. That it is what it is. I think Latin America have been use it to that not only Brazil but other other countries and and I think that uh, even though uh, words like recession is something that terrifies Americans for <laughs> that's that's not something that's a uh, 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 a new thing for for Latin Americans in the sense so um, but anyways it's going to be a hard year following what we saw to uh, in 22
0: right and um, it feels like we've sort of lurched from one crisis to another crisis I think um Bruno, just staying with you because I'm curious, does that make, you know, founders in Latin America, does it make them more resilient? Are they more used to these sort of uncertain economic conditions?
3: Yeah, I believe. And and, and more prudent as well with with everything. Even I think when we lost a little bit that uh you know, the previous year, some of the of the founders uh were not being that careful uh with funding that they received and and that's natural because it was a, a very optimistic scenario that everyone was 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 feeling. But right now, not only the founders, but the, they are very resilient because of that. Some of them forgot that we can always come back to a, a bad a bad situation, just like we're getting into again. But the more experienced ones are, I think, they are doing the right thing and trying to manage all of that, the the, the chaotic scenario they're going to face ahead. Uh, but anyway, nothing new. But for the experienced ones, for the new ones, some of them are just facing that right now.
0: Yeah, and then, I mean, look, Jenae, that's, I guess, the the sort of founder picture. But I guess one of the most sort of startling impacts that we've seen of this situation is the sort of the the large-scale layoffs that we've seen in sort of fintech, tech more broadly. Is that a trend that you expect to sort of continue into 2023?
1: Yes, I, I absolutely see that as a trend that will continue into 2023. And I even see um, a, a kind of a layoff for content creators as well, who depend on these technology firms and financial services firms to, you know, as means to supplement their income or substitute their income entirely. Um, I know that there has been reports of a, of a looming recession when it comes to content creators. Um, I know that there are some advertisers that, you know, will start limiting the amount of monies that they do give to influencers to create content for them. And you know, I think it'll just, it'll trigger a ripple effect. You know, the, the layoffs that we're seeing now will, you know, spur a lot of people to turn to gig work or, you know, to, um, you know, just being unemployed, maybe going back to school. I know enrollment rates right now in the U.S. are low because, you know, people are looking at alternatives to school. Uh, there are companies that, you know, maybe a few years ago, did not require a degree, you know, for people to work because they said that you know they needed people in those in those jobs right now. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely see a shift uh, when it comes to you know the future and and this, this looming recession. And I think the people who will be mostly impacted the hardest are Gen Z because they have not really seen and experienced a recession before. And coming off of a shock from the pandemic, um, it's it's not going to be very pretty.
0: Yeah, no, it's such a such a good point. And I think nobody's immune. You guys are setting me up for these stories. It's, it's wild because our next story is about um, creators and the creator economy. So I'm going to move us on. Um, it comes from TechCrunch with a headline, Ocho wants to rethink and rebrand personal finance for business owners. So newly launched, Ocho wants to make it easier for business owners to set up and manage their own 401k retirement accounts. Ocho was joining the several fintech companies aiming to modernize and rebrand the retirement account away from traditional providers like Charles Schwab or Fidelity or expensive solutions like lawyers and consultants. Ocho was leaning into founder Angkor Nagpal's background of working with creators when he was building Teachable. Teachable helped creators build revenue streams and Ocho wants to help those same creators take their earnings and invest, harvest and scale them in a smart way. So, Archo is charging a flat one hundred and ninety nine dollar annual fee to help individuals start their retirement account. It takes about ten minutes to set up, and forty eight hours to get final confirmation. So, Janae, I'm going to come back to you on this one. Um, maybe, um, maybe you wouldn't mind giving our listeners just a quick explainer on four hundred one k's, just for those that aren't sort of familiar.
1: Absolutely. So a 401k is an employer sponsored savings account that offers a lot of tax benefits for an employee Uh, with the 401k. An employee will set a percentage of their income to be taken out automatically from their paycheck before they're taxed uh, by the federal and state governments. Um, Sometimes that contribution is matched by the employer up to a certain percent. Uh, So people who participate in the 401k plan, they can choose how to allocate their funds um, amongst different investment options like ETFs and mutual funds, stocks, bonds. Um, I know uh, next year, the annual limit for employee contributions will be $22,500, which is why 401k is um, an attractive way of of saving your money. uh, Because if you use a Roth IRA or or something, any other alternative investment retirement vehicle, you don't have that much uh, funding. um, You have more funding restrictions with those investment vehicles than the 401k.
0: That's a a really helpful summary. And so I guess the next question, Janae, sticking with you is an obvious one. So I think there's an estimated 35% of private sector employees that don't Currently have access to four hundred and one k's through their companies. What are some of the the issues, I guess, with with four hundred and one k's as they stand right now?
1: Well, I think the the challenge um, the challenge with four hundred and one k's is uh, you know the fees are very high, um, depending on uh, how much you pay um, towards your uh, contributions every paycheck, uh, the 401k company that's, or the company that's um, holding your 401k account is, you know, taking a piece of that, um, your gains or service fees, they're they're charging those things uh, to you. Um, so I would say that's one of the biggest things uh, that I've, um, you know, seen in this space. And, you know, also looking at the people that don't have access. So if you're, if you're using a 401k you know it's mostly um, offered by traditional companies corporates um, you know but looking at gig workers looking at people who even work in the nonprofit space um, public servants that aren't members of the government um, you're not offered those same opportunities uh, as somebody working at a corporate uh, at a corporation um, so that's also another thing the accessibility it, it can be very limited um, I also think about the investor you know the the person who's contributing to the 401 K plan, they assume all of the risk that comes with managing that portfolio, um, their retirement portfolio. So, if they don't have the proper financial education, they could be choosing investments that aren't necessarily compatible with their financial goals when they retire. Um, so, looking at those three things, um, those are some of the biggest challenges with 401ks as they stand now. I know there's also another uh, challenge with you know people who are looking at um, you know uh, being able to use their 401k funding to invest in cryptocurrency. Um, I know that Fidelity has been offering that product for some time now, and there's a little bit of back and forth between lawmakers uh, who do not feel that Fidelity should be offering investments into um, crypto assets, but then you have consumers who are very interested in that. You know, it increases uh, financial accessibility for people who traditionally would not, you know, use crypto native products to invest in, in crypto assets. So I would say those are the four big challenges with 401ks as they stand.
0: Yeah, it's a complex landscape, isn't it? Um, Sarah, what do you think about sort of Archo and maybe the role that they can play in solving for some of the the challenges that Janae's just set out?
2: Well, I have to say I'm in no way an expert in 401ks. (laughs) What I can comment on is the huge gap that there is in an awful lot of the world between how much people are putting away and how much they're going to need to live on when they want to retire. Um, And so anything that helps people, um, A, understand that this is something they should be doing and B, understand how much they should be putting away and then C, helping them to do so if that's through a matching program or whatever, I'm all all for. I think if the product is... is, um, tailored to a specific industry, or specific niche, it's going to make it easier to get that kind of word of mouth, customer of acquisition going. People who are self-employed, we all share accountants, you know, for example, we all say, this is a great accountant, you should use that person, you should use that person. Because self-employed people don't obviously have pensions, um, you know, employer provider pensions in the UK, in the same way if they don't in the US, it's the same. This is the best SIP provider, this is the best pension provider. So if you serve one specific area well, I think that's going to, that's going to really help you because you understand. Understand the nuances of that industry, how those people work, how much it's realistic for them to be able to put away. Um, so I, I think you know if, if it can if it can do those things well, then then it, it sounds like it's marked for success to me. But I would just go back to the point I've made before. Right now is not a good time to be asking people to put money away for something that might happen in 40 years' time. Um, and the best way you're going to get them to do that is by saying, "You put five dollars, I'll put ten, whatever it is." With the caveat, unless you're Robin Hood, in which case I think you should back out of the, the retirement space. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not on board with their recent pivot from um, anything goes to, you know, plan for your future. But that's another story.
0: No, absolutely. And actually, that point about um, the, the sort of financial education, giving people those right tools that they need to not only build sort of good financial habits now, but in a, in a sort of sustainable way, actually built towards their future. Um, I, guess, I guess, Bruno, like going back to what we talked about with Bank, it feels like maybe fintechs are sort of uniquely positioned here to connect with those consumers in a credible way. And 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 actually work with them to, to to sort of achieve that, right?
3: Sure, sure. And and I think that when you look at the pensions industry, all of that, it's poised for reinvention. I think that if, if there are players that can really try to reinvent how how things are done in in, the, in this industry, are, are are some of the fintechs in the in the field. So. Uh, and 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 again, I think it's important talking about the the whole education thing, I and mean, that's a pretty huge gap here in, in in Latin America, and some of the players that are already gone into into this direction, like XP investment. I just I just uh, told you guys, uh, brokerage house that uh, Brazil got a low 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 uh, usage of, uh, uh, you know, uh, low percentage of, of people. Uh, on the stock markets and XP investment changed the game and changed the game in an offline era, which basically they did that in, in different parts of Brazil. Many lectures around what is, uh, is the stock market, something that no no other bank or other brokerage house did before. Uh, now we have we are much better equipped in terms of uh, what we can use in terms of digital uh, doing doing that digitally. Uh, and some some players are already doing good things in, in the sense. And New Bank is one of those players. Uh, the way they're trying to uh, change uh, uh, the possibilities for, for investors and how they perceive and how they really manage and understand uh, market. So uh, that's that's important. That's uh, and fintechs are doing something around uh, about that right now.
1: I just wanted to to quickly add um, off of what Bruno was saying. You know, financial education is very important, and I think that with the rise of of um, you know more uh, mobile banking, uh, neo banks that are uh, app only, there needs to be an uh, an emphasis on digital literacy as well. And a lot of people don't. Connect the two. They don't put them hand in hand. So if we're thinking about how can we make, uh, you know, the fintech industry be a more inclusive um, environment, we should also think about, you know, what kind of education can we provide for people that. Don't use the internet right now, or for whatever reason, don't have access to the internet. We can't talk about, you know, accessing underbanked uh, people and unbanked people without, you know, looking at, you know, are these people able to use a a phone? You know, are they able to go onto a computer? Do they have, uh, do they have reliable internet to be able to use those things? Do they have broadband? So, there, there are a lot of things that go into the digital literacy piece, and I feel like that is a foundation that you need to set if you're going to also introduce financial education on the internet or on an app um, or with you know any other uh, vehicle that is is used through a phone.
0: Absolutely, because you know financial inclusion or just inclusion generally isn't just extending it to the people that you can reach, right, or that are easy to reach. It's extending it to everybody, and I think that's such a good reminder. Um, Okay, great. So I am now going to move us on to our next section called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news stories this week. So first one comes from BBC News with the headline, UK banking rules in biggest shake up in more than 30 years. So the government has announced what it describes as one of the biggest overhauls of financial regulation for more than three decades. It says the package of more than 30 reforms will Cut red tape and turbocharge growth. Rules that forced banks to legally separate retail banking from riskier investment operations will be reviewed. Uh, those were introduced after the 2008 financial crisis when some banks faced collapse. The package of changes, uh, the Edinburgh reforms, is being presented as an example of post Brexit freedom to tailor regulation specifically to the needs and strengths of the UK economy. However, critics say it risks forgetting the lessons of the financial crisis. I think my thought on that is yes it does. Um I think when you go back to some of the things that we talked about in the um FTX and SBF story, I think sadly memories are short and we just don't really seem to learn the lessons um of the the sort of disasters that we go through. So, um I mean, we'll wait and see how this one plays out. Um but as far as I'm concerned, it's a uh, certainly not universally good news. Okay, um, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the show. And to mark this festive episode of FinTech Insider, we're asking our panel to put something on the naughty or nice list of financial services. Um, this is the point of the show when I get really pleased that I'm actually hosting and not on the panel. Um, this can be an individual, a company, an industry term, and we need just one for each list. So who should get a bumper stocking this year? And who deserves a big lump of coal? So Sarah, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind.
2: So I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. Um, the coal, in my mind, goes to Giorgia Maloney, uh, Prime Minister of Italy, who basically said that um, digital transactions <laughs> are not real money. Um, that's paraphrasing. And she wants everybody to go back to using cash and... Um, And I won't speculate as to why she might have suggested that, uh, given, you know, um, Italy's complicated political history. Um, But honestly, when I heard that, I was like, read the room. (laughs) You want help from Brussels and that's what you're going to say? So that's the call. And I have to do a, a, a present as well, right? Yes, please. So you gave us a list of suggestions and this is giving away the the secrets of of how this works. But when I saw Serena Williams on there, I kind of wanted to go for Serena Williams because I think she's just done so much generally um, for everybody, but then was slightly aware that we were going back into celebrity investor territory and that could be dangerous. But I think... um, she deserves an awful lot more praise than she gets for everything she's ever done. And when she does invest, and her sister invests as well, I know, at Venus Williams invests as well. When they do invest, they invest in products and services that support people like them from backgrounds they have come from um, to help, uh, you know, to advance advance themselves and, and help themselves, you know, g- take a step up in the world. So um, I think for all that she's sort of stepped back from tennis, um, she shouldn't step out of the limelight for all the other good work she's doing. And sorry if I've stolen anybody else's.
0: No, that was, that was really good. Really, really good. Um, Janae, let's go to you.
1: So I would say my uh, number one person on the naughty list is Kevin O'Leary, who was a fierce defender of the FTX collapse, um, who he even went and testified and in support of SBF uh, this past week um, on the Senate Banking Committee. But I uh, feel like his overall um, demeanor about this collapse and overall uh, demeanor about the crypto industry as a whole has leaving me it's leaving me with the desire to give him a big lump of coal. Um, and for my nice list, uh, the person I would give a present to, uh, I would say, and this is very interesting because I don't agree with all of his politics, but Patrick McHenry, who is the ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, he's uh, really done a lot uh, this past year to, you know, move the needle on fintech regulation and crypto regulation uh, in the House. And he is poised to uh, become, well, he will be uh, the next um, uh, chair of the House Financial Services Committee. So I'm excited to see his agenda when it comes to, um, you know, clearing up some of the regulatory gray area with fintech in the United States. So I would give him a present.
0: Nice. Yeah. Two great shout outs as well, Jenna uh, Bruno, what are your thoughts?
3: Well, uh, the call will definitely go to Sam Beckman Fried. It's just like, man, this guy is a social pad. And, and it's crazy when you look at everything that happened, you know, all the statements to the media before the way that he displayed himself as a paladin front of the, of the industry, a messiah that, and all, all of that statements just like, oh, I, I, I believe some uh, exchanges might be, might, might be suffering secretly suffering from liquidity problems and (laughs) come on you're talking about yourself so it's 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 so crazy so and 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 also the way uh that he's acting like uh it's not a big deal uh and and going to to the media and some some media giving him attention which i think it's a really bad thing uh and so it it all became a a big big circles and 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 for me that would The call would would go to him, and the the, the present uh, to to the president of the Central Bank of Brazil, Roberto Campos Neto. I think he's been doing uh, he's doing a a extraordinary job here. From everything since the beginning, I think there are lots of regulatory changes, regulatory sandboxes here implemented in Brazil. Pix, which is a huge phenomenon, that piece of infrastructure here in payments, real time payments in Brazil. Uh, and more recently, the CDBC, the, 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 the Brazilian Central Bank Digital Currency, uh, which is going to be released hopefully at the end of next year or so. Uh, and there are some tests already happening uh, by the industry. Uh, so I think he deserves the prize uh, and, and he, he's doing that extraordinary job. And right now he's going to chair also the Bank of International Settlements, if I'm not wrong. So uh I, I really wish that he can spread all those good practices uh, all over the world.
2: Can I yeah. can I award one further lump of coal?
0: Oh hundred percent. Go for it. We can keep going.
2: Can I can I well give him more than one lump of coal. Can I give it to Elon Musk please? Because yeah. I think he's possibly responsible for an awful lot of the cultural and societal issues that we have discussed in this podcast.
1: That's it. I was, just, I was just thinking about him, so I'm glad that you said it because I was thinking that, too. can we give a group lump? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's give him four
2: lumps of coal.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. Collectively, I'm very happy to give. I'm also, being, um, I'm also being accosted by our producer, Matt, saying that I do actually have to contribute, so I'm going to go very quickly. I'm going to do sort of two things that stood out for me this year. My nice list, my present. We did a, a, a deep, a, an inside show earlier this year on inclusive design, which I know we've touched on earlier in the show. And one that stood out for me was um, Sibstar, which is designing a, a fintech app for dementia sufferers, sufferers and their families, solving um, a really difficult, um, just sort of personal problem. So that's uh, that was one that really stood out for me. So so shout out to Sibstar and the guys over there. One thing that I'm going to give the lump of coal to that really just oh it just at the time i think it just gave me the creeps and i think it just spoke to like a worrying trend um certainly that we're seeing here in the uk but the idea of paying for sort of groceries and pizza delivery with sort of buy now pay later and i just think it speaks to such dangerous financial behavior and sort of building those habits over time is just so destructive right so um those are the two things that sort of jumped to mind for me um We had some suggestions actually from our listeners too, uh, sent to us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, And Nicholas Labovitz says, Dan McCrum defo makes it onto the nice list uh, after launching Money Man, couldn't agree more. And of course, everyone involved in the Wirecard scandal goes right on the naughty list. So again, I think that's a a good shout out um, in addition to those from our panel. Um, Right, so that wraps up this week's news show and our last news show of 2022. So thank you to all our guests um, over that and everyone who has listened over the last 12 months. We can't wait to share big things with you in the new year too. And of course, thank you so much to today's guests. Um, let's go around the virtual room. Uh, maybe you can tell us where people can find out a little bit more about you. Janae, let's start with you this time.
1: You can find me at, uh, on Twitter at Janae EO, so first and last name. And then my organization's website is progresschamber.org.
0: Awesome. Sarah, let's come to you next.
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky, or you can find me
2: on LinkedIn there as well. Um, and you can also apparently still find my blogs on the 11FS website. So that was a nice surprise this afternoon.
0: Well, lucky you. I think when it comes to like Christmas reading, downtime reading, <laughs> that is a go-to. Um, and Bruno, how about you?
3: Nice. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks uh, for, for having me again here. Um you can find me at LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Uh, Bruno Geniz, D-I-N-I-Z. Uh, so if, if you put fintech after that, I think it's easier to find uh, find me. And also at my website, uh, BrunoGeniz.com as well.
0: Awesome, Bruno. Thank you. And it's always our pleasure. And as for me, you can find me at RossGallagher07 on Twitter. And listen, thank you for listening. Um, do join the conversation on social media. Email podcast at 11FS.com and find our mailbag link in the show description to submit your questions for the panel. Thank you very much. Goodbye and Merry Christmas.